Well, later in our service today, we'll sing a few more songs and partake of the Lord's Supper together. But first, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, as we spend some time soaking in God's word together. I think we, we Americans especially, we expect a lot out of our leaders. But paradoxically, we're, I think, quite cynical about our leaders. Some wag has said, the good thing about democracy is we can replace all our leaders every four years without a coup d'etat or a civil war. That's cynical. But often we are excited about the new leader that just got elected, and then months later, sure, we could do better, mad at this or that. Perhaps at any moment in a presidency, we're, we're just wondering, what's the point? What's the point? Can't we just do just fine without any of this? Well, that had to be something of the sentiment in Israel in the days of 1 Samuel. They wanted a leader, but as we'll see throughout this study of First and Second Samuel, they always wanted the next leader. The problem wasn't essentially one of the kind of leadership. The problem was one of sin. And yet, God was using various leaders in various ways. We come to 1 Samuel 2, the second half today. I'll start reading in verse 11, and we'll read to verse 21 just to get the gist of the story of what we're going to look at in the rest of the chapter. But we'll start with verse 11 through to verse 21. It says, Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Elkanah, of course, is the father of Samuel, the son. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first. And then take as much as you wish. He would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli, the priest, would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition that she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Again, that's just a gist of what we'll see in the rest of 1 Samuel 2. But we can't forget what we saw last week in chapter 1, in the first half of chapter 2. We saw a godly woman, Hannah, who is barren and desperate. 
And so she prays. She prays to the Lord for a son. And like Hannah's barrenness, Israel as a nation is spiritually barren, dried up, dead on the inside, hopeless and helpless. And the humble godly of the land are praying, God, do something, intervene, step in. Well, the Lord hears Hannah's prayer, and in time he fulfills her request, and of course he gives her the son, Samuel, and she keeps her vow that she made when she first prayed for a son. She vowed that she would give him back to the Lord if he would give her a son. She vowed that he would ha- she would hand him over to the Lord's work. So once he was weaned, she did just that. She gave him to Eli the priest, and he was raised there at the tabernacle. But right after Hannah delivers her son Samuel to the priest, she gives this lofty prayer in chapter 2. It's seemingly too grand for the occasion. Just look at verse 10. It says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. So here God, through Hannah, has revealed that he's going to work powerfully on behalf of the nations. This son born, Samuel, he's just a a hint of what's to come. He's a seedling of what God's going to do. What God can do for Hannah, he can do for the whole nation, even for the whole world. That's really what what she's talking about at the end of her prayer. God's going to do something big, like rout his enemies. Like, take down the lofty, exalted ones. He's going to lift up the humble and godly ones. And he's going to do it all through a king, his anointed. Anointed means Messiah. In Greek, it's Christ. A Christ-like figure. Now, as we read Hannah's prayer, and it comes to an end, it feels like the ball is rolling. It feels like this thing is going to move quickly. The boy Samuel sure looks like a promising figure. But then we turn the page and it's apparent that God must first clean house. God must first clean house. And you'd expect from Hannah's prayer that the adversaries that God's going to clean out, the adversaries that will soon be broken, are those nasty Philistines, those Gentiles surrounding God's people and have been for for centuries now. And they've been at war and at the losing end of war with these Philistines again and again and again. They're still a threat. They're still a problem. They're still a roadblock to the fulfillment of all of God's promises from long ago. Surely they're number one on God's most wanted list. But God's judgment begins at home. He has to dismantle before he will build up. The words of 1 Peter 4 are apropos here. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. As we look at the second half of 1 Samuel 2, we'll consider first the story under five headings, and then the implications, two of those. Five parts of the story and two implications to follow if you're looking on the sermon notes page in the back of the bulletin. First, the story, and the first part of the story is this, the sins of Eli's sons. 
The sins of Eli's sons is where this section begins, this scene. Verse 12, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Hear that, the sons of Eli were worthless and didn't know the Lord. Eli's the high priest. Eli's the man. He's the religious leader of the nation. Surely his sons would be godly, right? Surely his sons, who are also priests, would would be some hope to the nation. No, the sons of Eli were worthless. It's interesting that that word worthless is used here. It's not the first time it's been used in 1 Samuel. We saw last week in chapter 1, Hannah went to the tabernacle and she wept and she prayed. And Eli the priest saw her and he thought she was drunk. He said, put away the bottle. And she responded with this, oh oh, no my lord, do not consider me a worthless woman. Hannah wasn't a worthless woman, the whole story demonstrates that. But you barely turn the page in your Bible and you read, Eli's sons were worthless. How so? They didn't know the Lord. Oh, they knew him in theory. I mean, they're priests, they're religious. But it's all impersonal. They don't know him savingly. They don't know him covenantally. They didn't fear him. They didn't walk in his ways. They didn't want to obey him. They're in full-time ministry, you could say, and yet they're wicked. Just like the people around them, they simply do what is right in their own eyes. Before we go any further, does that describe you? Do what is right in your own eyes. What would God say of you? Worthless? Would God say, they do not know me? Keep that in mind as we consider Eli's sons and then later Eli. Where do you fit into all this? The passage goes on to show us how they were worthless. It proves they didn't know the Lord. And to understand the sins that are mentioned here, verse 13, 14, 15, 16, You've got to understand something of what that scene is like, what it's referring to. It's not referring to just any old average everyday meal. It's referring to an offering that would be done at the tabernacle where a family would go to Shiloh and they would, they would honor the Lord there. They would obey his word by making a sacrifice and then eating a meal of celebration after that sacrifice. The meal afterwards is what's being referred to in these verses 13 to 16. Now the priest was supposed to get some of their meal. That's in Leviticus 7. The priest was living off the people, right? And, and that's a, a normal thing. It was part of God's plan that they would do that. But Leviticus 7 makes it clear. The meat was to be burned first. The fat of the meat was to be burned off first. And then the family would give a portion of their meal to the priest. But what these two jokers are doing is they would send their servant. Just note that. They're lazy. They would send their servant to go do their dirty work. They would send their servant to a family, and he would go into their their cauldron, their pot, their bowl, whatever, with a fork, and he'd stab until he got something. Whatever he got, he claimed it for the priests and walked away. And sometimes these two priests would even send their servant to say, Hand over your meat before you cook it. We want it raw. And if a godly, 
Jewish man would say, wait, doesn't the law say burn the fat first? They would say, shut up and give it, or we'll take it by force. It's amazing. It's a multi-layered picture of sin. It's loaded with symbolism, actually. They're stealing from the people when they're supposed to be serving the people. They're disobeying God. They're intervening with the people's worship. They have no regard for the sacrifices of God, even though they're in charge of them. And they have no concern for what these sacrifices symbolize. You see, the fat was to be the Lord's portion. Symbolically speaking, it was the Lord's. No one thought God ate it or something, or that he needed it like he's an idol. But it symbolized that the best portion and the first portion was the Lord's. So you burn the fat off and then you go from there. Everyone else can divvy it up. But with these two priests, they take the best and the first portion. They take all they want. God's people can have whatever's left and God can get the scraps. God can get the scraps. What does God think of it? Verse 17 tells us, The sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. But it turns a brighter corner. Secondly, we see the blessing of Samuel. The blessing of Samuel in this story. Verses 18 to 21 introduce Samuel to us once again. And with every mention of Samuel in this chapter, he's described in his relationship with God. Let me show you what I mean. Like verse 11, it says, the boy was ministering to the Lord. And then verse 18, he's ministering before the Lord. And then verse 21, Samuel is in the presence of the Lord. And verse 26, he grew in stature and in favor with the Lord. So when Samuel's referred to, it's not just who he is or where he is or what he does necessarily. It's not just referring to him in a certain office or position. It's always in relationship to the Lord. He's with the Lord. He's before the Lord. He's in God's presence. Christians, this is true of us today, by the way. Everything we do before the Lord. It's with the Lord. It's... In God's presence, for better or worse, right? Whether we sin or obey. But this is true of Samuel in those days in a unique way. And all this is true about Samuel when he's a boy. Note that. He's a boy. In verse 19 and 20, you see there that every year his mom and dad would come back to Shiloh. And every year mom had made him a new priestly robe in ephod. Each year, a little bit bigger. He's a boy. He's growing. Each year, he needs a new robe. And each year, mom shows up and gives it to him. You'd think it might be just some sort of cutesy little dress-up kind of thing. Like, he's going to be a priest someday, and so he he likes to dress the part. When I was a boy, I was always getting a new costume, right? Cowboy or, you know... uh, Policeman, you know, you put on the uniform because you want to be that someday when you grow up, and parents like it, they think it's cute, and you outgrow one of them, and you got to get a new one. It's almost cute, except 
of all those descriptions about Samuel's relationship to the Lord and his work before the Lord, this isn't cute. He's wearing the part because he is the part. You see repeated contrast throughout this chapter. It keeps going back and forth between Eli and his sons, and that's sad and it's sinful. And then the hope-filled faithfulness of Samuel. So now we turn a page and we turn a corner and we see a darker scene now. Now we see Eli's weakness. Thirdly, Eli's weakness. Verses 22 to 25 describe this for us. Look there in your Bibles. It says, Now Eli, the high priest, was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen. They would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Don't get distracted yet by that it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. First, look at verse 22 and notice that Eli kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. This is famous. It's ongoing. Reports keep flooding in. Eli's way too patient here. He says to his sons, I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. Not all at once. They kept coming in, kept coming in. It was a report that's been spread abroad by the people of the Lord. It's famous. Eli hears it. He hears of it again and again and again. Eventually, he does something. Eventually, he confronts. But he only asks, why do you do such things? Verse 23, why do you do such things? According to the text of 1 Samuel here, he doesn't even mention the specific sins. The narrator of 1 Samuel tells us what the specific sin was that that made Eli go to his sons. But if we look at just what Eli said to his sons, there's no mention, just generalization, almost like he doesn't want to go there, doesn't want to talk about it. Why are you doing such things? You can get in big trouble with the Lord about this. But the narrator tells us what those sins were. In addition to those that we saw in verses 13 to 16, now in verse 22 it says the priests would lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. That's putting it discreetly, but you know exactly what that's saying. You know just how sick and salacious that is, that they've turned God's house into a brothel. And the tent of meeting, that phrase tent of meeting, Now that describes really the whole tabernacle. But tent of meeting started back in the Exodus book, uh, the Exodus story. And there God would meet with Moses one-on-one in a smaller tent, the tent of meeting. It was a holy place. The people couldn't draw near. They'd see God's light, his glory come down upon this temple and fill it. And amazingly, God would speak to Moses. The tent of meeting. Now that tent, the place of God's presence and the meeting with his people, is a tabernacle. It's a much bigger tent. But they've forgotten. 
They've forgotten what tent of meeting means. And so, they get with the women who are in charge of the front door. You could say the greeters of the tabernacle, the deaconesses of the church, the secretaries, whatever. Ladies that help out around the tabernacle. Yeah, these guys hook up at the front door. Hophni and Phineas are their names, we'll find out. They're greedy, gluttonous, sexually immoral, and the worst part about all of those things is that they're intermingled with worship. That's why Eli says what he says, verse 25. If a man sins against a man, God has forgiveness. But when you sin against God, look out, there's, there's no forgiveness. He doesn't mean that some sins are just to a man and not also to God. All sins are against God. But what he means here is there are normal sins and then there are sins of God's worship. And he takes those very seriously. He doesn't ask questions. He just steps in. Eli remembers. He remembers things of the Old Testament that came before, stories of God's judgment exercised immediately upon those who messed with his worship. Eli's rebuke could have been stronger, but it should have been enough for these two priests, his sons, to wake up. And yet they don't. It says in verse 25, they would not listen to the voice of their father. They could not listen to the voice of their father. Their hearts were now hardened. It's too late. The Lord had bigger plans, which now included putting them to death and starting over. They don't deserve any better. Keep in mind, none of us do. Nevertheless, what a contrast Eli's sons are with what we'll see of Samuel in the next chapter, next week. Samuel will hear the Lord speak with perceptivity and humility. But these, Hophni and Phinehas, they they won't even hear the voice of their human father. They're deaf to him. And of course, this leads to, maybe even implies already, the inevitable, the fourth thing in the story, God's judgment. God's judgment. Look at verse 27. And there came a man of God, an unnamed man of God, to Eli, and he said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever, but now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. 
The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house will die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be a sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. Judgment. This unnamed prophet shows up, confronting Eli and warning of the judgment to come. God is cleaning house. God is cleaning house. Judgment is beginning at the household of God. Ten times in these last ten verses, the word house is used. Didn't I reveal myself to the house of your father? Verse 27, referring to Aaron, the the first high priest. I called your father's house to be my priest. Your house was to go in and out before me forever. Your family, your people, your kind, your line. But now the days are coming when I will cut off your house. Your house is under a curse. No one will live to old age now. They're all going to die by the sword in battle. All the descendants of your house will die, except one guy, and one guy will live just long enough to observe the sad demise of your house. And if God's going to destroy the house... That obviously includes these wicked sons. It'll be a sign to you, both of them will die on the same day. This happens in chapter 4. We also read there a few verses later that Eli dies that very day as well. Now, Eli didn't do all the wickedness that his sons did, but he didn't stop them. He didn't rebuke them sharply enough or clearly enough. He He didn't hate the sin. He honored the sons more than God. He also apparently ate of their stolen meats as well. Remember, they would steal meat from the people. They would eat the sacrifices of God in a way that God did not, did not prescribe. It says in verse 29, you and your sons have fattened themselves. We find out in chapter 4 at the end, when Eli dies, it says he was heavy. <laughs> He's a fatty. He got real big on all this bonus fat meat. That's not his. It's the Lord's. And so it's right for this man of of God to say, you've scorned God's sacrifices. You've honored your sons above the Lord. I wonder how much there we can apply to ourselves. How many of us need to hear this and think about someone we need to rebuke, a wayward son or daughter that we're being too gentle with. Maybe in our age of loving children the way we do, we come closer to the idolatry of children than we do the despising and neglect of children like other cultures in previous millennia have done. Could it be said? You honor your sons above the Lord. You honor your daughter above the Lord. Let us hear these things and, and tremble. Some of us are busy in ministry. We're at church a lot. We do ministry things often, so much so that they're commonplace for us. It's part of every day for, for some of us. Are they becoming empty? Mere routine? 
those who would take advantage of God's people for their own benefit, for their own bellies. Yes, TV preachers and others need to hear this and tremble. Not fattening ourselves on the people or using God's things and his tools and his ministry and his worship simply for our own end. It's his. That's God's judgment, but fifthly, there turns another corner for a bright hope. There's a significant promise. A significant promise at the end of this chapter. Verse 35, it says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a secure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And then back to a a judgment. And everyone who's left in your house, Eli, shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. That promise began with this phrase, I will raise up. That's significant. God is raising up. He's tearing down Eli's house and he's raising up a new one. Eli's sons are going down and Samuel is growing up. Physically and commensurately in the Lord, with the Lord. Tearing down, raising up. This is just what Hannah said would happen in her prayer. She said in verse 7 of chapter 2, The Lord makes poor and the Lord makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes And yet, verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, and against them he will will thunder. This is a significant promise. God is doing it. He is raising up, and he is tearing down, just like he said he would. But who is the faithful priest of verse 35? What is that referring to? I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. Samuel sure seems like a likely candidate. He's been in the background all along of this story, and he certainly seems hopeful, right? All good things about Samuel. Certainly it's Samuel. Yeah, but technically he's never a priest. He's not of that line of Aaron, He's a prophet, he's a judge, but on the other hand, he's extremely priest-like throughout this this whole book. He functions like a priest throughout 1 Samuel. He's wearing the clothes of a priest, even from boyhood, an ephod. That's reserved for the great priest, the high priest. He's the guy making sacrifices in later chapters of 1 Samuel. He is faithful. He does what's in God's heart and mind, by and large. But he's not of that line of Aaron. So verse 35 is probably probably referring to someone much further later in the story. In the days of Solomon, David's son, once the temple is built, the permanent tabernacle, there's a priest of the line of Aaron who becomes the singular priest, the great priest again. It's Zadok. Sounds like a bad guy in Superman, doesn't it? Zadok. He's in 1 Kings 2. And most scholars think that Zadok is that promised priest of verse 35, which means that this has given us a promise that's way out in the future. That's two generations away. Hmm. 
And yet there are layers to the fulfillment. You can't help but think of Samuel as part of the fulfillment of this verse, this promise. God is raising up Samuel. He is a faithful priest-like guy. He does what's in God's heart and in God's mind. And he helps with God's anointed. The coming king, which we'll see in later chapters. There are layers to the fulfillment. That means that God's promises are often near and far off. But they're sure. Whether they're near or whether they're far, they're always sure. And we can depend on that. Whether it's that guy or, no, 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 go ahead, two generations later, it's that guy. He'll do it. He'll do his plan. And he'll do it without the Eli's. He'll do it without the Hophni's and Phineas's. He'll do it without you. He'll do it without me. He doesn't need us. His promises are bigger. It's a significant promise. Now we turn to some implications. Two implications about this passage. How should we think about the story? How should we apply the story? Well, first, we have to talk about the need for leadership. The need for leadership. I'm sure many of us read through a passage like 1 Samuel 2, and we apply it like this. Eli's sons were very bad. Don't be like Eli's sons. Eli was weak and wimpy. Don't be like Eli. Samuel was good. And before the Lord, and he did what he was supposed to do, be like Samuel. And that's not all bad. But I don't think that's, that that should be our first point of application with a story like this. We shouldn't just think imitation. We should think being in subjection. What I mean is, we should first ask, what's it like being under this or that guy at this or that time in God's plan? It's a question of leadership. We shouldn't first identify with the priest or his sons. No surprise that we Americans do that, right? We go right to the top of the story. We put ourselves in his shoes. What would I do if I were there? Instead, think you're walking the streets of these days and these times, and you have a copy in your hand of the Israel Times, and you're reading the headlines, and these headlines affect you. You're hearing about this priest. You're hearing about his sin. You're hearing about fat Eli. You're hearing about their death. Remember how judges ended? In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No king, no leader, no godly rule. Remember how Hannah's prayer ended? The Lord will give strength to his king. He will exalt his anointed. How does the book end? Second Samuel, remember there are two books, but really it's one, first and second Samuel. In the end, second Samuel 22, David prays, and it's all about the king, kingship, the reign, God working through him. What that means then is we should think, what a horrible thing in these days, for God's people to be under such horrible men, such greedy, gluttonous, immoral leaders like Eli's sons and weak Eli, and judgment's coming, then what? The only bright spot is Samuel. 
but he's just a boy. He's just a boy. I mean, no one knows he's there. It'll be some time before he's actually leading. What can he do? He's just a boy, but you know what? These boyhood references in the passage we read today, they point us to a greater hope than Samuel, great as he became. In 1 Samuel 2, verse 26, it says, The boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. Does that sound familiar to you? Have you read parts of the Bible where that, that, that sounds similar? In the New Testament, it's used almost identically about another boy, another promised one, a miracle baby. In Luke 2, it says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Oh, surely that's a coincidence. No, no, they're too close. It's it's not a coincidence. Clearly, Luke is pointing us back to Samuel. God's doing something big with a boy. Now, we'll see what happens with Samuel in Israel in upcoming weeks. But, But for now, we can't help but fast forward and get our attention over here in Luke 2 with Jesus This one who increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He's got to be somewhere down the line of the promises to come and the fulfillment therein. So just as Samuel was before the Lord and was in the presence of the Lord. And just as he was in favor with the Lord. Just as Zadok, two generations later, was a faithful priest doing what was in God's mind and heart. So, Jesus, just listen to Hebrews talk about this. Jesus, in chapter 7 of Hebrews, is a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests of old, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And then chapter 8. He's one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Hebrews 9, Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places in heaven, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What relevance the Old Testament stories have for us today? Well, we just did a little walk right here to this meeting, didn't we? we? We went from a priest, a priest is coming. You need a priest. We need a leader. We need godly leadership. Is it Samuel? David? Zadok? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And in him we have redemption. He's the high priest. In him we have salvation. And he puts us together in this thing called the church. And we're to stir up each other with love and good works and we're to meet together like this to talk about his love and his grace and his promises and his word just like this. We need a leader. We at times like to think we'd be just fine without him. God says we need a leader. Now leaders, plural. So much, yes, that's true, but, but this plan that's unfolding before our very eyes is that we need a good, righteous Caring, wise, sacrificial, prophet, priest, king. Only God himself will do. Only he will do. And lastly, secondly, of the implications here, we need to remember. There's a need to remember. In 1 Samuel 2, there are hints at the crux of the sins of Eli and his sons, was one of forgetting, forgetting God's promises, forgetting God's ways, forgetting history. That unnamed man of God in verse 27 reminded Eli, didn't he reveal himself to your house and to your father when they were in Egypt and subject to Pharaoh? And from there he goes on to tell more and more stories. He says, why then do you scorn my sacrifices? Apparently, in some ways, Eli had forgotten, not forgotten facts or the history or the stories, but he wasn't living in light of God's work and his promises of old and his sons far less than him. In 1 Samuel 12, we see from Samuel, who's now an adult, a prophet and a judge, the importance of remembering as he preaches a sermon to the people And he says in 1 Samuel 12, The Lord appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I might plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. And then for verses upon verses, he goes on recounting God's stories, his workings, his wonders, his rescue and his glory, his faithfulness. And then he concludes... With this plea, only fear the Lord. Samuel says, serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he's done for you. Oh, this is a major theme in the Bible, that so much of the Christian life is fought uh, on the ground of remembrance. In the Old Testament, God gave certain meals to help his people remember. And the Lord has also given us one for this day, for these times. A meal of remembrance we call the Lord's Supper. It's the ultimate meal of all the meals. It's the one to which those other ones pointed and hinted at. 
The Apostle Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We need remembrance, remembrance of Jesus. We need to remember not just that he existed or or that he did certain things or said certain things, but full remembrance before our, our eyes at all times if possible. We're forgetful people. We forget why he needed to die. We forget the extent of his death and the cost of his death which shows us that the extent of our sin and the extent of his love. We forget the surety of his sacrifice for us, that he said it's finished and he died. The sacrifice was made. God confirmed in the resurrection that what Jesus said was true and trustworthy. The payment had been met. We forget that when we doubt. We forget that when we, when we worry. We're forgetful people and we need to remember him. We remember him through his word. We remember him with encouragement to each other. We remember him when we meet together, when we pray, when we sing. And we also remember him in this meal he's given us, this little meal, symbolizing his life and death, his body and his blood spilled on our behalf, the payment made in our place that we might be restored to God.